Hi, I'm Robin Anea, and this is my podcast, Nothing on TV, in which I ransack Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from mostly the 19th century, a time when there was literally nothing on TV. I've been writing about Australian history for nearly 30 years, and newspapers have always been a mainstay of my research. That used to mean hours and days spent cross-eyed in front of a microfilm reader. Thank God for Trove, is all I can say. But scouring old papers, I've always been struck by accounts of how many people in the 19th century would turn out to witness the laying of a foundation stone for some public building. Thousands, sometimes tens of thousands. Same for the funeral of some worthy uh, pioneer or explorer, politician, or the arrival of some minor royal. Political rallies, protests, a building on fire, a huge draw card. The streets would be choked with crowds, there'd be riots, pickpockets would have a field day. And why? Why did people turn out in such numbers for the merest spectacle? There was nothing on TV. Newspapers flourished for the same reason. Even a small town might have two or three different papers. People made their own fun in the streets and paddocks, at the racecourse and the theatre, at church or gather around a piano? And why did pubs flourish on every street corner? Because there was nothing on TV. Anyone who, in pursuing a line of research, has ever delved into an old newspaper will know the impossibility of keeping to the task at hand. At every turn of the page, your attention is snagged by a multitude of distractions. Some are intentionally eye-catching, like, for instance, a blaring promo three columns wide for a touring circus. Others, though, are modest, just a few lines, and some are so stunning that you wonder, how did I not know about this? You can't believe it hasn't reverberated down the ages. The papers were broadsheet, each page carrying seven columns of tiny, tight-packed print. In the news pages, which were in the middle of the paper, the front and back pages being solid advertising, news items weren't generally differentiated from one another by anything in the way of a headline. So now, if you're a researcher seeking something in particular, you have to run your eye over everything or else you're liable to miss it. And that, running your eye over everything, leads to no end of distraction. That's the genesis of most of the stories I'll be presenting here in Nothing on TV. Things that have caught my eye when I'm on the scout for something else. Mostly I'll make a note on an index card which then gets consigned to a file I keep called Interesting Stuff. That file, getting fatter but unloved, has languished at the back of my filing cabinet for maybe 20 years. Now, at last, I've found a use for it. Not just that, I have the chance at last, thanks to the advent of Trove and the goddess Google, to follow some of these chance discoveries back to their source and onward, if I'm lucky, to their conclusion. Down the rabbit hole, in other words. Episodes of Nothing on TV will appear monthly or so, with a ghost story or two, tales of wildlife in suburbia, stories from the lost and found column, and more. And as you'll discover, I'm drawn to fabulosities and to big stories that lurk behind the commonplace. Listen to this from page five of the Melbourne Age on Tuesday, 7th of November, 1854. Death by drowning. On Friday, at about four o'clock p.m., the neighbourhood of Cremorne was alarmed by the news of a boy having been drowned in the lagoon at the end of the street. Immediately, every exertion was made to recover the body, which lay at the very deepest part, but without effect. 
till Mr. Ellis's elephant, driven by a madras man, plunged in and diving for between a quarter of an hour to 20 minutes, sometimes using a stone to keep himself down, at length succeeded in bringing up the body. Now, just picture the scene. A full-grown Asian elephant with a boulder, what, curled up in its trunk as ballast, diving repeatedly into a Yarra River waterhole at the end of a suburban street. The report in the age ended like this. All means were used by the neighbours for his recovery, but in vain. The boy's name was Thomas Nolan. Ah, not according to the Herald, it wasn't. That paper identified him as the son of the late Martin McGlynn, a Burke Street cooper or barrel maker who had died the previous year. And yes, the name on the boy's death certificate is Thomas McGlynn. He was nine years old. It seems that after lunch on that Saturday, not the Friday, as the age had said, the boy went to the lagoon with a friend, and while his friend washed some clothes, Thomas went in to bathe. Now, bathe was the operative word, because like most kids, like most people of that era, he couldn't actually swim. Well, it was one of those treacherous water holes with a bottom that drops steeply away, and when Thomas got into trouble, his friend rushed for assistance to a brewery close by. According to the Herald, the workmen there said they were too busy to help. Enter the elephant. Or did he? For upwards of 20 minutes, said the Argus, ineffectual attempts were made by diving and dragging to rescue the lad who, it is thought, became entangled in the long reeds, when, at length, the keeper of the elephant, attached to Cremorne Gardens, succeeded in bringing the boy up. Huh, that rather makes it sound as if it were the keeper, not the elephant, who did the diving, and in fact, the Herald and Argus were agreed on that point. Though one described the keeper as a Lascar, that is an East Indian sailor, and the other as a Malay, the age, you'll remember, called him a Madras man. Not one of the papers dignified him with a name, not even an incorrect one. It's worth noting the age was in just its third week of publication, which perhaps accounts for the discrepancies between its report and those in the more established papers. But you do wonder how the parents of Thomas Nolan, whoever he was, felt when they read that their son was dead. How did it happen? that an elephant and his keeper were on hand anyway. Cremorne was, still is, a riverside neighbourhood of Richmond, not much more than a couple of miles from the centre of Melbourne. It got its name from the Cremorne Gardens, set up there in 1853 by James Ellis, who, before he emigrated, ran an establishment of the same name beside the Thames in London. Cremorne was a commercial operation known as the Pleasure Gardens, a kind of precursor to the amusement park, which combined the attractions of a circus, a dance hall, and as the name suggests, a public garden. There were fire eaters and freaks, acrobats, performing animals, a menagerie, an ornamental lake stocked with goldfish. There were gravelled garden walks, refreshment booths and bandstands. There were theatrical turns, sideshows, bowling alleys, camel rides, hot air balloons, dancing under the stars and fireworks every night. An essential ingredient of any such enterprise was, you guessed it, an elephant. He'd been shipped in via Singapore early in 1854, along with a pair of camels and an orangutan and a taper that died on the way. That rather sounds like an alternative line to the owl and the pussycat. They dined on mince and slices of quince, and a taper that died on the way. Dictionaries define a taper as a large, inoffensive, chiefly nocturnal ungulate with a heavy body and fleshy snout, which makes it sound unprepossessing, but also oddly familiar. Large, inoffensive... Isn't there a bit of taper in us all? Anyway, adverts in the amusement section of the age yelled, What? Not been to Cremorne to see the elephant in the water? 
other ads hailed the clever and sagacious Siamese elephant from Cremorne as the greatest performer in Victoria or even in the world. Every afternoon at four or at six in the summer months, crowds would ring the waterhole near the Yarra's edge to watch the elephant take the water. I've seen just one newspaper account of the performance itself. The reporter approaching Cremorne by boat from Flinders Street found the sight of an unwieldy elephant floundering in the stagnant water to be less than marvellous. The elephant, I wish he had a name, was retired from Cremorne early in 1855, owing, said the age, to the occasional display of vicious propensities, and was sold for £80 to a man named Ramaswamy, a native of Madras. We know it now as Chennai though he wasn't apparently the same person as the nameless former keeper. Ramaswamy told a reporter that he had arrived in Melbourne with the gold rush swarm of the early 50s and in the intervening years had profitably followed his old occupation of laundryman. In venturing his savings on an elephant, he hoped to make a speedy fortune by exhibiting and hiring out the renowned pachyderm. Elephant and keeper put in newsworthy appearances on the stage at Geelong and at the Melbourne races, but, well... Let the Standard of Freedom, a newspaper from the town of Kilmore, take up the story. In an incredibly short time, the elephant ate up the remainder of poor Ramaswamy's earnings and then began to feed upon the stalls of the Melbourne greengrocers. This for a short time passed off as a capital joke. To see an elephant pick off a few cabbages, bunches of turnips, carrots and other vegetables and then walk onto the next stall was rather amusing, especially to those who did not pay for it but two frequent repetitions of the diversion aroused the greengrocers, and so war was proclaimed against His Majesty. Ramaswamy thought it best to curtail their perambulations through the city and instead set his elephant to graze on the Yarra Bank, not far from Princess Bridge. But more enticing than stubbly grass was the hay in the stables of the military barracks just upwind. You won't be surprised to hear that the elephant broke his chain and plundered the stables, smashing stalls and alarming the horses. Ramaswamy, brought up before the city court, promised to be more careful of his cumbrous charge in future and was discharged with a caution. Since he could ill afford the 100 kilograms or more of hay needed daily to satisfy his unlucky purchase, and since also the pair of them were no longer welcome in Melbourne, Ramaswamy deemed it prudent to take his elephant on the road. They paid visits to Kilmore, Castlemaine, Ballarat and points between, soliciting contributions in shillings or biscuits along the way and for the most part the elephant was admired for his docility. But his reputation was undone when he tried to force his way into a farmhouse kitchen, smashing the door down with his trunk and breaking the farmer's ribs. Soon after that, at Ballarat, Ramaswamy left him unattended while he ducked into a refreshment tent, and the elephant ran amuck. For months, Ramaswamy had been anxious to dispose of his half-starved companion, but failing an offer from a circus or a car yard, you've got to wonder how easy it could have been to unload an elephant. One of the papers on Ramaswamy's behalf appealed to some of our aristocratic millionaires to just imagine how dignified would be the position of an MLC, that is a member of the Legislative Council, riding in state upon his elephant to the ballrooms at Turak. But no such spectacle eventuated and the press seemed to lose sight of the elephant. Until, a couple of years later, one of the Adelaide papers carried a story suggesting that after his tour of the goldfields, the Cremorne Gardens elephant had been sold for a very ridiculously small sum to a farmer in South Australia who'd harnessed him to a plough, which degradation had such an effect upon the spirits of the poor brute that he gave up the ghost. In all likelihood, though, this was a different elephant from a different Cremorne Gardens. You see, in early 1855, the Adelaide suburb of Unley had its own Cremorne Gardens, 
It was more of a beer garden, really, attached to a hotel and with a menagerie thrown in. An elephant offering rides was one of the main attractions, and this elephant's keeper had a name, Hassan Ali, which we know from a press report of a complaint he laid against his employer, the Cremorn Hotel publican Thomas Bentley, under the Masters and Servants Act. Bentley not only had failed to pay Ali's wages, but had supplied him with a pair of boots fit only for riding an elephant in. Not long after, while Ramaswamy and his elephant were still making the rounds of the Victorian goldfields, the Adelaide elephant, familiarly known as Tommy, was sold, according to a report in the South Australian Register, to a Mr John Smith of Smith's Hotel, Smith's Creek, near Smithfield, formerly the village of Gawler Plains, who hired him out for farm work. Tommy, it seems, was still an infant, as elephants go, and unlike Ramaswamy's, was said to be not a great eater. Within a few months, he moved on to another engagement at Jepps Cross, still in the agricultural line, ploughing, grubbing out trees, hauling heavy loads. Travellers on the North Road were advised to give his paddock a wide berth and turn their horses' heads a little to the other side if they are skittishly inclined. Fifty years later, a Mr Scamell would tell the Adelaide Express and Telegraph that I have good reason to remember that elephant. Scamell had been driving a cart past Tommy's paddock when the elephant poked his head out from behind a haystack and trumpeted, with the result that my horse bolted and was not pulled up before he reached South Terrace, right in the middle of Adelaide. Another newspaper account published long after the event seems to confirm that it was Tommy, not Ramaswamy's elephant, that gave up the ghost in South Australia. Tommy's last owner was the hotel keeper at Jepps Cross, and his son recalled, years later, how his quiet and gentle pet used to come to the bar door every lunchtime for a loaf of bread and a trunk full of beer, and how, after being left out in the paddock one cold, stormy night in 1857 or 8, the elephant died. He was buried nearby, except for his hide and tusks, which were sent home to England. How on earth, without an elephant to do the grunt work, did they ever dig a hole big enough to bury Tommy in? I've got to confess, I wonder whether Ramaswamy's elephant didn't end up after his spree at Ballarat down an abandoned mine shaft somewhere on the goldfields. But then, I do have a history of speculation along such lines. I once persuaded an audience in Bendigo, at least I think I persuaded them, that there's the carcass of a circus elephant buried under their local library. And hey, for all I know, it might be true. Nothing on TV is made in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia. Incidental background noises come courtesy of the traders of Castlemaine and the cockatoos devouring pears on the trees outside my window. Nothing on TV is produced by Mrs Bradley, my long-time literary agent and muse. Is there nothing that woman cannot do? You'll find more episodes on iTunes. Why not subscribe while you're there? And then fresh episodes of Nothing on TV will appear like magic in your podcast feed. And if you feel inclined to leave me a rating and review on iTunes, that'd be great. It'll help others to find the show. Visit my website, robinanear.com slash nothingontv or just Google Nothing on TV for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. There you can also send me an email and you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into the marvels of Trove. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.